Hey, so good to see all of you here today. Uh, I am just uh, really, really grateful to be able to uh, share with you as part of this series. Uh, but having said that, I think we ought to give our worship team a huge, huge hand. They just do such a good job. Yeah, Aaron has done a great job in raising up other people to help us out here. So God bless you, friend. Great leadership on your part. As uh, Pastor Larry said, we're going to continue our series on Transformed, and we're going to look at an issue that's hugely important in my life and your life, and that's relationships. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer, and then what we're going to do is we're going to unpack a variety of scriptures to see what the Lord would uh, show us today on this crucial part of our lives. So let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your compassion and mercy, the grace you've poured out on us in Jesus. Oh, Lord, wherever we're at today, whatever situation we've entered this auditorium today, emotionally or spiritually or physically, financially, relationally, Lord, I pray that you would come and meet with us in an individual way today. Lord, we need your grace. We need your guidance. And so as we look in your word today from a variety of angles, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, by your power, you would instruct us, you would guide us, you teach us and encourage us. Lord, we want to be whole people. We know that's your call, so we ask for your help in that process. Uh, we ask for this time now that you would be glorified and we'd be blessed, and we pray this in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This is Taylor Swift. She's one of the most prominent musical artists of the current generation. Uh, Taylor started writing songs when she was 11. She started recording when she was 16. And she was a major pop icon by the time she was 20. Uh, Taylor Swift has millions and millions of fans worldwide. And she exerts enormous cultural influence in American society. And if you don't believe me, just ask the parents of any 13-year-old girl. Yeah. Now, the main reason why Taylor's so popular is because she speaks consistently and directly to the huge role that relationships have in all of our lives. A few years back, right after the release of one of her new albums, she did an interview with Melissa Block on NPR. Here's part of what she said. In the past, I've written mostly about heartbreak or pain that was caused by someone else and felt by me. On this album, I'm writing about more complex relationships where the blame is kind of split 50-50. I think there's actually a realism to my new approach to relationships. I used to think, you know, that you'd find the one and then it was happily ever after and never a struggle. But you have a few experiences with love and a few more experiences with relationships. And you learn that's not the case at all. Relationships are complicated. And even if you find the right situation, it's always going to be a daily struggle to make it work. So these are the different themes that I don't think people have really seen in my lyrics before. Now, just as she did in that interview, Taylor Swift's music gives voice to two key aspects of our lives. 
Relationships are really, really, really important to us. And relationships are often very, very complicated. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're single or you're married, whether you're male or female, what your color of your skin is, what your economic background or demographic is, whether you come to church regularly or not, or if you're 15, 45, or 75 years old, we all know that relationships are really, really important to us, and we all know from our experience that oftentimes they can get very, very complicated. And as it always does, Scripture explains why this is so. Right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, one of the very first things the author of those texts tell us is that relationships are so important to us because we're made in God's image and God is both relational and personal at the core of his being. Uh, The God of the scripture has revealed himself as triune in nature. Uh, What the scripture tells us is that God is one being, but he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the three persons of the Godhead always work together in perfect intimacy. They always work in relational harmony with each other. And because we're made in his image, we're also very personal and very relational creatures, and that's all good. But the problem comes in the fact that our relationships get complicated. They're imperfect. And you know this and so do I. Oftentimes, they contain pain. And we're told the reason why that's so in Genesis chapter 3. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were these beautiful, wonderful creatures who were made in God's image. And they lived in this paradise called Eden. And they had perfect fellowship with God, and they had love and intimacy relationally with each other. But then the serpent entered in, and he told them, you should become like God. And they made that horrible choice to go that direction. And they fell from their state of grace, and as a result, they were kicked out of Eden. And one of the main consequences of their sinful disobedience was that from then on, their relationships and all human relationships would become broken, tangled, and painful. And just to make the point, the author of Genesis shows all the relational carnage that sin causes by describing the behavior of some of the descendants of Adam and Eve. I mean, Cain and Abel are their children, and Cain kills his brother Abel, murders him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Lot's daughters get him drunk, and then in an intensely X-rated scene, commit incest with him. Abraham plays huge favorites between his sons Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, play favorites with their sons, Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob eventually has to flee family and friends because of that. And then he goes to Mesopotamia where he winds up with two wives and two concubines. And those four women are always in conflict with each other, always competing for his attention. And he eventually has this whole brood of kids by them. And then Jacob, true to his sinful nature and his family upbringing favors one of his sons, Joseph, over all the rest. And the result is the other brothers conspire to kill him, but then they decide not to kill him, and instead they sell him into slavery. Friends, these people are not the Waltons. In fact, they're not even the Goldbergs. They are messed up. They need Dr. Phil or Dr. Spock or at least a little bit of Dr. Seuss. What the writer of the book of Genesis wants us to know is that all of humanity, including you and including me, have the poisoned blood of Adam and Eve flowing through our veins, and that negatively impacts our relationships. One of my favorite authors and preachers is Fleming Rutledge. And a few years ago, she came out with this absolutely fantastic book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It took her 16 years to write this book, but essentially the question she's asking is, why did Jesus have to die by crucifixion? I mean, crucifixion was the very worst, the most painful, the most degrading, horrible way to die. Why did God have his son die by crucifixion? And she looks at all these different theories of the atonement. And essentially, she boils it down to this. Jesus had to die by crucifixion for you and me because we are all a lot worse off than we think we are. Now, friends, that's the bad news. But the good news is that Scripture comes to us time and time and time again, all the way from Genesis through Revelation. And Scripture shows us that God has this huge heart for each and every one of us. He really does, at the core of his being, love every single one of us here far beyond what we can imagine or think. And because he loves us, he wants us to see, see us transformed, especially in our relationships so that our relationships can be healthy and happy and functional. And so, to make that happen, to start that process on the right foundation, he gives us his grace in Jesus. Let's look at a text here and see what uh, the text would teach us about this key subject. This comes from Titus uh, chapter 2. So let me read this, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friend Titus, who was the pastor or the bishop of the island of Crete and some, some churches that they planted there. And here's what he said in this section of the letter. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And then notice this next line, really, really, really important. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Like I said, that's the poison blood of Adam and Eve flowing through our veins. But then he goes on, and here's the good news. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
And then he goes on and he unpacks this a little bit more. Look, listen to what he says. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, obviously, as we just saw here, Paul relates the fact that in our natural sinful state, we're relationally tangled even to the point of hating each other. But then, as Paul always does, he gives us the hope of transformation that comes in the gospel. And the gospel, as laid out in this text, tells us that despite our tangles, despite our brokenness, despite our sin, God has this huge heart of love for us. And he's demonstrated that by pouring out his mercy and grace on us in Jesus, who's our Savior. And then he's given us the miracle of a new birth, a new nature, by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I can't stress this enough, so I'm going to do the best I can to drive it home. God's grace is the foundation for all of life, and it's what makes it possible for you and me to get untangled from our sin and begin the movement towards relational transformation. Uh, not too long ago, um, I had... Uh, a meeting with a young guy that was in a class that I was helping to teach this summer, and it was an online class, so we had never, ever met in person, and he wanted to get together and get to know me, and I wanted to get to know him, so he emails me one day, and he says, hey, Dr. Winnick, can we get together and have lunch? Well, lunch is one of my spiritual gifts, so of course I said, yes, you know. <laughs> so not too long ago, we met, and we sat down, and after we got our food, I said, you know, I just want to get to know you better. Uh, tell me your story. And it was like putting in the quarter and pulling the lever, and he just took off, and he said this. He said, well, I just want you to know, I grew up in a pretty broken, tangled environment. When I was three years old, my mom died, and my stepbrothers had to go live with their real father, and so my father raised me, but he was a pretty broken, wounded person, and he didn't really know how to parent me very well. He was pretty neglectful, and then he was pretty abusive, and he said, by the time I was 12 years old, I had totally sworn off God. I wanted nothing to do with God. And he said, so I got really involved in the world. And I got involved in all the things the world does, and my life was spiraling downhill. And he said, finally, I, I somehow or another managed to graduate from high school, and I went to college, and I flunked out my first semester. And he said, I was working kind of these retail jobs, not sure what I was doing or where I was going. And he said, so then I started to do drugs. And he said, eventually, over the next couple of years, I got hooked, addicted to oxycodone. And he said, then, in the middle of my drug addiction, I meet this girl, and I really like her, and she's not really a believer, and I'm certainly not a believer, and we slept together, and she got pregnant, and so I decided I wanted to get married to her, and I tried to convince her that I had cleaned myself up, and she believed me that then she found out a week before the wedding, I wasn't cleaned up. I was still really, really addicted, and she called the wedding off, and he said, it sent me into a tailspin. So he said, I moved from oxycodone to heroin. And he said, I started getting high on heroin every day. And he said, after about the third or fourth day, he said, I OD'd. And he said, they rushed me 
into the ER and they cleaned me up and after 24 hours they released me. And he said, I went back home and I got the heroin that they had just cleaned me up from and he said, I OD'd again and he said, I got in my car and I'm driving down the road and he said, I collapsed behind the wheel of my car off to the side of the road and he said, I was laying there and I said, I was pretty much unconscious and I was going to die and a good Samaritan pulled me out of the car, called 911 and they took me to this rehab center that was a Christian rehab center and they got me cleaned up and after they cleaned me up, a guy came in and said to me, you've got one choice. If you don't give your life to Jesus of Nazareth, you are going to die, and you know that's true, so I want you to give your life to him today. And he did. And he said over the next few days and the next few weeks, he started to just make a little bit of progress, started to get cleaned up, was really trying to trust the Lord. And by this time, his girlfriend was getting near the due date, and eventually she gave birth to the baby. And he said, my goal was to simply have a relationship with my daughter where I could contact her every other week. And he said, over the next few months, God just began to do more and more things in my life and in her life. And he said, she finally came and got me from the rehab center one day, and we went to the courthouse and we got married. And then she dropped me back off at the rehab center and went home and told her parents. I said, how'd that conversation go? (laughs) He said, there was a lot of yelling and cussing. But he said, we eventually got back together and we decided by the grace of God, we're going to take it one day at a time. And he said, eventually the Lord called me in the ministry and now I'm out here and now I'm a pastor. And he said, my dad just came to Christ about a month and a half ago. He's flying out next month and I'm going to baptize him. Friends, God's grace is always, always, always the foundation of for the transformation that takes place in our lives, especially when it comes to relationships. Now, this is so important that I want to piggyback on something Pastor Larry did last week in his sermon. From the perspective of the New Testament, this whole idea of transformation is rooted in one of its richest words, the Greek word morphew, which means to morph or to change or to be transformed into something else. The word morphu was originally used to describe the formation and the growth of an embryo in its mother's womb. Well, what the apostle Paul does, and he was so brilliant at this, he would take these words and then he would apply them to how God's working in your life and my life. Look what he does here with this word to describe how the Lord is at work in you and in me. He says, if we know Jesus, if we know Jesus, by his grace, he is being formed, more foo in us. If we know Jesus, by his grace, we are being conformed, sumorphizo, into his likeness. And then he goes on, and he says, if we know Jesus by his grace, we are being transformed metamorphizo by the renewing of our minds. Now, as a pastor and a professor, I don't know how many times over the years uh, I've talked to different folks who got really, really discouraged because they stumbled in their walk with the Lord or They got in a relational tangle and they just felt like it was going nowhere. And they began to think that nothing would ever change. 
And if by some chance you came in here this morning, and that's where you're at, you're thinking, I'm never going to get over this sin. I'm never going to get this relationship untangled. This is always going to be a point of pain for me. And I want you to know I've been there. But here's the thing. I have good news for us. The gospel proclaims that God showed his huge heart, his everlasting love for you and me in the death of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, the pouring out of his spirit upon us. And as Paul says at the end of Romans 8, there's nothing ever, anytime, anywhere in the entire universe that can separate you or me from the love of Jesus. He has this huge, 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 incomprehensible heart of love for us. And what we need to keep in mind is that this process of transformation, especially in the realm of relationships, is a long-term process that takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and it requires God's power. That's his calling on our lives as Christians. Let me show you what I mean from this wonderful, wonderful text out of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. As you know, Paul planted this church, he loved this church, he visited this church, and now he's writing them this letter, and here's what he says to them, and this is in the context of relationships here. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Now listen, 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 this is really, really important. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Uh, one of the finest New Testament scholars of the past generation, Gordon Fee, wrote an award-winning commentary on the book of Philippians. And he says that verse 12 could be very accurately translated as in your relationships with one another, work out the salvation that Christ has brought you. Well, Paul's telling us here that a big part of our calling as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to have a heart that's willing to work really, really, really hard on relational transformation. You are to work out your salvation, your relationships, recognizing that God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the word in verse 13 that's used there for God working is the Greek word energeho from which we get our word energy. Friends, God always will give us the energy, the grace, the power to work really, really hard to move in the direction of relational health and transformation. One of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, a book I would highly recommend to all of you, is by J.D. Vance, and it's called Hillbilly Elegy. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's very moving. Any book that can get me to laugh and cry within two pages, that's, that's a pretty transformative book for me, which he does. He tells his story growing up in the Ohio River Valley, and Appalachia. And he grew up in this really, really broken environment, tons of unemployment, enormous amounts of drug use, family dysfunction that's almost hard for me to conceive. He grew up in a family where his mom had 15 different boyfriends and or 
Husbands, over the course of his first 13 years, tremendously dysfunctional, very abusive. He said basically his life was saved by his grandmother and his grandfather. And he eventually came out of that environment and joined the Marines, and they transformed him in some ways. But along the way, he came, became a, a disciple of Jesus. And then eventually he went to university and went to Yale Law School. And he writes this book to talk about his background and the environment in that part of the country. But he also goes on to say that Jesus can make a difference in your life. And he talks about his own relationship with his wife. He said, coming out of this background, he said, I was not good husband material. But he said, between the grace of my wife and the training of my aunt, who's a believer, and the training of my sister, who's a believer, he said, I've learned to move by the grace of God, towards relational health. He said, they taught me, J.D., every disagreement does not have to become a public spectacle. Every disagreement does not have to end in this huge, raucous argument. Friends, relational transformation is possible for you. It is possible for me because God is at work in us, but it's always founded on his grace. And then it is worked out over time through our intense efforts and his incredible energy. Now, on our end of the spectrum, God's going to do his part, but on our end of the spectrum, the very first thing we want to do in this area is move towards what I'm calling some honest assessment. Listen to what Paul tells the Roman Christians here in verse 3 of chapter 12, that great letter. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, he's talking to you and to me as well as to them, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Now, if you look in the larger context of Romans chapter 12, Paul's talking all about relationships inside the church, but also as they go out into Roman culture. He wants them to be relationally healthy, relationally functional, because he wants them to represent Jesus. And he says that can only happen if we sit down and we do some honest self-assessment. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But the implication is, don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought. You know, some of you in this church I know, you think of yourself more lowly than you ought. You want to think of yourself, as Paul says, says so do I, with sober judgment. One of the greatest philosophers of ancient Greece was Socrates, and he postulated one of the main foundational theorems of ancient Greek philosophy, know thyself. If we're going to move towards relational transformation, friends, on our end of the spectrum, remember, God's going to do his part. On our end of the spectrum, we need to know ourselves. We need to think of ourselves with sober judgment. So let's do a little bit of honest self-assessment. Let me give us some questions we might want to ask ourselves and meditate on. What was my family of origin like? What was it like? What's my personality like? And that's where you can do a personality test. Taylor Johnson temperament analysis. A Myers-Briggs personality exam. 
You can do the Enneagram, which is really, really popular right now. That'll show you how you're wired, how God made you, your natural way of functioning and relating. What are the areas of my life where I've been really, really wounded? What counselors call your wound pool. See, I have a wound pool, and so do you. And if you step in my wound pool, I will react because I've been hurt there before, and I feel that pain. That's true for you as well. What are my blind spots? The areas that I function in, people around me who like me go, oh, that's just who he is or that's just who she is. But other people who don't know me and don't like me say, oh, boy, that's not very healthy. In all honesty, what's my level of emotional intelligence? See, this is a place where our spouses... Our friends, maybe even our colleagues, can be a really, really great aid to us if we let them speak into our lives. This is also the area, honest self-assessment, where getting into counseling with a really good, gifted, insightful counselor that we have good chemistry with, they can really, really help us here. A number of years ago, my mom died after a really long battle with cancer. And she had been a huge support to me through my whole life and especially the prior four years before she died. And when she finally passed, and she went to be with the Lord, but I was pretty devastated. For the first and only time in my life, I was clinically depressed. I mean, usually I get up in the morning and I'm ready to go. Let's rock and roll. Let's get after it. We've got things to do. We've got a great God to serve. And I, I couldn't get out of the bed in the morning. I felt like I was walking in cement. Finally, a friend said to me, uh, Scott, you've just had a huge loss. I think you ought to get some counseling, and here's the person you need to go see. And it was a person that I had some contact with a number of years before that. And so I went in and made an appointment with her. And here was the deal. I wanted her to cure me of my clinical depression. And she wanted me to become more emotionally and spiritually transformed. So she started to press in on me. One of the first areas she pressed in on me was, she said, I want to talk about why you're so controlling. Well, it's because I'm godly. No, no. She said, let's talk about your family of origin. And so I told her about my mom, and I told her about my dad, and I told her, well, they were always trying to control me. They were always trying to control my sister, so I guess I learned it from them. And she said, well, okay, but let's look at why they were controlling. They grew up during the Depression where they had nothing. They went through World War II, where my mom used to say, I was just so glad your dad got home alive and we could have a life. She said, Scott, they had so many losses when they were growing up that they wanted to protect you and Becky from having any losses. They meant well. that You can't do that with life because life's filled with losses. But they meant well. They intended to protect you. Let's unpack why you're operating that way because, Scott, you can't control life. Friends, relational transformation is not easy. It takes a lot of time. It might be costly. But here's what I want us to understand. Here's what I want us to remember. God has this huge, huge heart. 
of grace for you and me. And he's revealed that in Jesus. And because he has this huge heart of grace, he's willing to give us his supernatural energy. He's saying, I want you to work out your relationships. I want you to put some time, some energy, some effort into that. Make that a priority. I want you to become healthy and happy and functional in your relationships. And I will give you the power to do that. So given the reality of God's grace, given the reality of God's power that's available to you and me, what I want to suggest are some building blocks that we can use to build on what he's given us to move us towards greater relational health. Here's building block number one. Let's have a heart of respect towards others, not a heart of resentment. Now, once again, we're back here in the book of Romans. Paul's very concerned about how the Roman church is relating but now he's kind of even moved it out into the culture at large. And you got to remember, remember, the Roman church at that time was small, and they were a minority, and they were surrounded by this huge oppressive civilization. And here's what he tells them. Listen, this is incredible. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay them taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. Now listen to what he says here. This is really important. Accept the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Friends, there's a tremendous amount of content in these two verses, but I'd like to suggest that the core of what Paul is arguing here, the center of it that we need to get a grip on is having a heart of respect towards others. One of my intellectual and spiritual mentors over the year has been C.S. Lewis, the great English writer. Uh, he's known for many, many of his great books, but perhaps his most prominent one was Mere Christianity. If you've never read this, let me encourage you to go get a copy tomorrow and read this. And if you have read it, let me encourage you to reread it because it's really, really good for us. Just reread it this last year. He has a great chapter in here on social morality, how you and I should relate out in culture. And he says this. He says, the New Testament doesn't really give us a detailed description of what a Christian society would look like, but nonetheless, it has some hints. Listen to what he says. First of all, it tells us that there should be no passengers or parasites. If a person does not work, they ought not to eat. Everyone's to work with their own hands, and what's more, everyone's work is to produce something good. There will be no manufacture of silly luxuries and then of silly advertisements to persuade us to buy them. And there's to be no swank or side, no putting on of errors where people think they're better than others. Secondly, the New Testament is always insisting on obedience obedience and outward marks of respect from all of us to properly appointed magistrates from children to parents and I'm afraid this is going to be really unpopular from wives to husbands third it's to be a cheerful society full of singing and rejoicing and regarding worry or anxiety is wrong Courtesy is one of the Christian virtues, and the New Testament hates what it calls busy bodies. 
Friends, you and I, and you know this, and so do I, we live in a culture where all those qualities Lewis just described, especially the issue of respect for others, are in short supply, or they're in shorter supply than is good for anybody. Here's our opportunity. Here's our chance to move towards relational transformation by showing people respect regardless of whether they're our spouse or our kids, whether it's a senior citizen, whether it's a youth, whether it's an employee, an employer, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a friend, whether it's a colleague. If we're going to, by God's grace, with his power, move towards transformed relationships, we need to have hearts of respect. Secondly, I want to suggest that we have hearts of service, not selfishness. Let me read this text, and then I'll explain what's going on here and why it's so important. <clears throat> this is in the context of what we call the upper room discourse, John 13. Here's what John said was going on. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, as I just said, this is the beginning of what biblical scholars call the upper room discourse. It's the Passover. This is the beginning of the last supper that Jesus will ever eat with his disciples while he's here on earth. Now, what we normally do from our perspective is we perceive the Last Supper from the picture that Leonardo da Vinci painted. And it's Jesus in the center of this table, and all the disciples are on one side of him or another. But that's completely not accurate. See, they lived in an Oriental culture, and when they sat down to eat, especially the Last Supper, they would have been laying on couches. And you would lay with your arm like this, and your feet would be this way. And you're laying in a circle. So your feet are close to somebody's face. Now remember, remember, they came in from the streets to this upper room. The streets were filthy. They were filled with dirt. So whenever you came into a room, there was almost always a servant there. And the servant's job was to wash your feet as you came into the room to get you ready so you could eat your meal. But on this occasion, it doesn't look like there's any servant there. They come into the room. There's no servant. And you can imagine knowing the disciples and who they were, what's going on? They all notice there's no servant. Peter notices this, and he says, Peter, or Peter says to Andrew, Andrew, you should wash our feet. And Andrew says, I'm not doing that. Make James and John do it. They always think they're so great. James and John said, we're not doing it. Make Thaddeus do it. He never does anything around here. So they're having this argument, and look what Jesus does. He takes off his outer clothing. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours water into the basin, and then he washes those 24 filthy feet as their servant. Now, it's important to keep in mind, Judas is in that room. And within the next few hours, he will leave that room, and he will leave, and he will go betray Jesus. And Jesus knows that, and yet he still washes his feet. As one commentator said, 
Jesus at the foot of a traitor, what lessons for us? I would agree, what lessons for us? You know, some of you in here, tomorrow morning you're going to get up and this next week you're going to work and the boss you work for is a really difficult, challenging person. Let's tell the truth. She's not a good gal or he's not a good guy and it's a very tangled situation relationally. Can you, can you, can you, by the grace of God, according to the power of God, find some way or another to serve him or serve her in a helpful manner? Some of you in here are dealing with relatives who are graciously described as relationally challenged. Now, the Lord may not be calling you to be intimate with them or be close to them. In fact, you might even have to boundary them in some ways. But here's the question. Can you find a way to serve them in a way that might help? Can you send them an email? Can you give them a text? Can you give them a call? Can you write them a note and mail it to them and just say, thinking about you, praying for you, hope this week goes well for you? Some of you in here? your bosses or your people in authority. You're dealing with difficult employees. Some of you in here are dealing with difficult people that you go to school with. Some of you in here have really challenging neighbors. Once again, we don't have to be close to these people. We don't have to be intimate with them. But can we find ways, small or maybe even big if the occasion calls for it, where we can wash their feet and serve them in some way or another because Jesus of Nazareth, by his power, by his grace, is calling you and me to be relationally transformed just like he was. So our first building block is a heart of respect. Our second building block is a heart of service. Our third building block is a heart of humility, not hubris. One of the big ideas of the Bible is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that idea is taught in Daniel 4 and Luke 18 and James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5. But the classic expression of what God honors is humility. And that comes to us here in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to me and to you here, as well as to those first Philippian Christians. In your relationships with one another, in your relationships, I want you to be transformed, friends. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude of humility as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, Paul's really, really, really clear here. He's telling us, listen, if we want to be relationally transformed, if we want our marriages, our friendships, our church life, our places of employment, the schools we teach in, every place we go. If we want those relationships to be healthy, happy, and functional, on our part, to the best of our ability, what we need to do is approach those relationships with humility. And that begs the question, doesn't it? 
What's humility look like? What's it look like to have a heart of humility towards others? Well, I'd like to suggest that humble people are not doormats who don't have opinions or convictions. They're just people who have opinions and convictions and are willing to articulate those, but they don't always need to win arguments. They don't always need to be the person who's right or in charge. Humble people are not wallflowers or people who just always blend in with the crowd and stay invisible. They're just people who enjoy life, but they're really, really interested in other people. They're concerned about other people. They have a heart of humility and a heart of respect and a heart of service towards other people. Humble people don't think of themselves as more godly or more righteous or more spiritual than others. They're just people who know that this great God of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe, loves us so much that he has this huge heart for us. And he's given us his grace, and they realize that, and they've appropriated that grace. And they said, you know what? I want to be a person who gives that grace to him, to her, to them. A number of years ago, out in Southern California, there was a teenage boy by the name of Felix Garza and a teenage girl by the name of Donna Ashlock. And they were in this class together, and they started this relationship. And as the relationship went along, they became pretty much emotionally infatuated with each other. And so they started to date. And their dating relationship was going really good, but there was one problem. Donna had a very, very defective heart, and it was expected that she would pass away before she turned 19. Well, as the school year went along and their relationship developed, eventually her health really declined. So her parents took her out of school and they put her in the hospital on bed rest. Well, a couple of weeks after she was in the hospital on bed rest, Felix came home one day and said something to his mom. Now, teenage boys who are in love, they oftentimes say kind of weird, out-of-the-box things. Well, Felix came home and he told his mom one day, he says, you know what? I'm going to die and I'm going to give my heart to Donna. His mom said, don't say stuff like that. He said, I think that's going to happen. And you've got to remember, Felix is 17 years old. He's in perfect health. He looked like he was going to live till he was 90. And a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden, one day at school, he had a whole series of headaches, and he collapsed, and they called 911, and they came and grabbed his body, and they rushed it to the ER, and he got to the ER, and he was dead on arrival. He had had a brain aneurysm. And so the doctors consulted with his family, and they said, he's really healthy in some other ways. Can we use some of his organs to help some people in need? And they said, yes. And so a couple of days later, they had taken Donna and they'd rushed her into surgery. And when she came out of surgery, her dad was sitting next to her. And her dad said, Felix died. And they took his eyes and they gave him to some blind people. And they took his kidneys and they gave him to some people who had been waiting for kidney transplant. And she smiled and she said, and I have his heart, don't I? Friends, Jesus has this huge, enormous, incomprehensible heart of grace for every single one of us here. And what he wants is he wants to give his heart of grace to you and to me. And once we get his heart of grace, what he wants us to do is work out our relational salvation. In other words, we've got to work really, really, really hard at that, but we've got to remember that he always will give us the energy, the power to do that. 
And so as we work at our relationships, if we have hearts of respect and hearts of service and hearts of humility, we've got to trust that God will be working at us, in us, and through us to help us move ahead as best as we can towards relational health so that our relationships are healthy and happy and functional. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to take the hand of somebody next to you because we are a church committed to good relationships. I'm going to give us a benediction. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, we need your grace. We need your help. We need your strength. Lord, we need your heart. Thanks so much for your love for us. Watch over us today, Lord. Watch over our families and our friends. Give us a great work week serving you. Make your face shine upon us and lead and guide us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, give somebody a hug or a handshake before you go.